invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 19, for this last session in this Bible conference. <clears throat> Revelation, chapter 19, is the climactic chapter of the book of Revelation. If you were to study the flow of each chapter, as we have a little bit so far in this conference, you, you would see that everything is building to chapter 19, when Jesus Christ comes back. And in fact, I do believe that all of history is building towards what we're going to read in Revelation 19 as well. Or you see, it's at that point that Jesus Christ comes back to the earth and he judges. There's the battle of Armageddon, but he sets up his kingdom on the earth. And according to the book of Daniel the prophet, once that kingdom is set up, it is irreversible. It is eternal. It'll never be overthrown. There'll never be another election. Hallelujah. <laughs> Christ will rule and reign as the victor forever. So what we see in Revelation 19 is climactic. In fact, as we think of the major events down through world history, can you think of four any more significant events than the creation of the universe and mankind, as we see in Genesis? And of course, the fall afterwards was significant in terms of impacting humanity. And then there was the flood that changed the topography of the earth. And then there was the first coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we think of his first coming, we think of the fact that he died as our substitute for all our sin. And he's paid in a satisfactory way the sin debt penalty we all owed and deserved. And he paid it in full so we could be fully and freely and forever forgiven. And we also know that he rose from the dead. And he's alive forevermore, never to be subject to death or the grave again. In fact, he is the conqueror. He is the great overcomer. And we simply follow in his train, as we'll see in Revelation. And he rose and he ascended to heaven. So as great as his first coming was, the Bible has much to say about his second coming as well. Now, as you think of these four events, they have changed the course of human history. And this message today will focus on the last event that will change the course of history, the return of Jesus Christ and what is called the Battle of Armageddon. Now, there have been many battles down through human history, and some are fam very familiar to us, like the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, where Napoleon famously met his Waterloo, as we say, where he was defeated, his downfall. And then there was Gettysburg, July of 1863, a key battle in the Civil War. And then remember the Alamo, of course, February of 1836. Or the Battle of Little Bighorn, otherwise known as Custer's Last Stand, where he was defeated, June of 1876. Or how about World War II with Iwo Jima, February to March of 1945. And ever since the fall of Adam and Eve into sin, War seems to be endemic to the human race, doesn't it? In fact, one source I read recently said that uh, it estimated that there have been about 50,000 wars in the last 6,000 years of human history. Another source I read said over the last 3,400 years, there have only been 268 years of peace, otherwise the rest has all been a time of war going on somewhere in the world. 
Very little peace compared to war. But there is one great war that is yet to come at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, known as the Battle of Armageddon. And this war was predicted by the prophets throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. And it's described for us in detail in Revelation chapter 19. In fact, many of you are here today, and maybe you've served in the military, and maybe some of you are veterans. But I dare say the majority of us are not veterans. But I want you to know this, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will get your veteran status because you will be involved in the war that we're going to read about in Revelation 19. It's the war to end all wars for at least a thousand years afterwards. So it's a monumental war. And of course, I'm speaking again of the return of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, King of Kings, in great power and glory in the Battle of Armageddon. And you've seen this prophecy chart several times so far in our, our conference. And just to get the context of what we're referring to, it's this arrow that goes down from heaven to earth, the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth, with us following the Lord Jesus Christ. And once he returns to the earth, that's when this battle will take place. And that's when he will set up his kingdom. So that's where we're at in terms of context. Now, how important is the second coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, as Pastor Kevin said at the very beginning of this conference, uh, he stated that there were 1,527 Old Testament passages referring to the second coming. And I took careful note of his figures because I realized we must have the same source because I didn't even have 1,526 or 28, but we had the exact same number just to show that both Pastor Kevin and I are infallible teachers. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> In fact, Pastor Kevin and I laughed before uh, we each got started today. Uh, he ran off the handouts, and I had some changes to my handout ahead of time, but they didn't get made on the, the handout, unfortunately. It was too late. And so you're going to see some, some errors on my part on your handout today. I've corrected it on the PowerPoint, but that's a, a reminder to me that you need to just stay humble, Tom, because you're always growing, you're always learning, you never get everything right. So your handout may not be infallible, but I'll tell you what is, the Word of God, right? So the Old Testament is replete with references to this great event that's coming. But so is the New Testament, some 330 references to this coming future event. And not only that, but we know that when our Lord Jesus ascended, the angels spoke to the disciples who were standing there looking like this. What just happened? Jesus ascended in glory, in the glory clouds. And they stood there looking up into heaven, just mesmerized. And so the angel says, hey guys, wait a minute, you got to learn something here. Here's the lesson. He said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which was near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. By the way, you don't travel far on a Sabbath. It's supposed to be a day's rest. Now, what is the hill of Olivet? It's right there east of Jerusalem, staring at the Temple Mount area. A literal place, a literal hill. And we're going to see that this mount comes into play with the battle of Armageddon and the return of Jesus Christ. But a second truth I want you to see in general terms about the second coming of Christ is that his return will be bodily. 
It'll be visible, just like when he ascended from the Mount of Olives. How did he ascend? Acts chapter 1. He went up in his resurrected, glorified body in glory. And guess what? He's coming back in glory in that same resurrected, literal, physical body. You see, the resurrection of our Savior is not some phantom myth. It's not something idealistic or figurative. It is something literal and tangible and physical. It speaks of the true nature of his resurrection body. You see, that body was subject to death, but he overcame death, hell, sin, the grave, and he rose from the dead. And his coming again in a physical state, that same resurrection body, is proof positive that he's the true conqueror or overcomer. And this is what we're going to see in Revelation 19. But before we look at Christ's return to the earth, let's just see what precedes this event. So before we see the battle and we are participants in the Battle of Armageddon, we're actually going to go to a bridal fitting. Many of you have been brides, and you think back to the day you got married, or before you were married, what a special time that was, and you were so excited to go to the, the bridal shop and look for dresses and try out different ones, and, and then the day came, you had the one picked out, and you went in for the fitting, right? And what an exciting day that was. Well, here's the fitting. For us, as the bride of Jesus Christ, his church, we read about this fitting right before we come back to the earth with the Lord Jesus. In Revelation 19, verses 7 through 10, it says this, Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And I believe this speaks of a garment that is given collectively to the church, corporately, as his bride here. We've already been rewarded for our individual works, having gone through the judgment seat of Christ, Revelation chapter 4. But this is a corporate fitting. And so we collectively are his bride. Then verse 9 says... Then he said to me, this one who's revealing this to John, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which will be at the beginning of the kingdom, I believe, after Armageddon and the return of Christ. The marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And John was so blown away at this experience and what he had seen, he says, and I fell at his feet to worship him. Is it possible for a believer to commit idolatry? Yes. Aren't you thankful for the grace of God? So the angel says to, to John, See that you do not do that. I'm your fellow servant. And of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. He's the one to be worshipped. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Verse 10 is very significant. Because it tells us that with all this prophecy we've been learning about, where our focus should be. It should be on the person and work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you can have all the information about future prophetic events um, buttoned down and you know, on the launching pad of your thinking, but if Jesus Christ is not occupying your mind and your heart, 
and he's not front and center, then we have missed the essence of biblical prophecy, dear saints. It's all about him. And we're going to see that now as we come to his return and we come to the battle of Armageddon. As fascinating as this battle is and all its details, what I love about this section is in Revelation 19, the focus is first of all on the person of Jesus Christ in a very a detailed description of who he is. So going on, having seen the context, we read in verses 11 through 16, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of lords. And that's who he is. Now I highlighted for you in verse 11, a key opening phrase, now I saw heaven opened. Why would John record that? Because it's going to be significant for those who dwell on the earth. John is already seeing these magnificent revelations in heaven, but for our sakes and for humanity's sake, heaven becomes opened. And why is it opened? Not to let Christ out. He's breaking through for sure when he returns. But it's so that every eye can see him returning to the earth. You may recall from Revelation chapter 1, there's this powerful opening scene of the book where Jesus Christ is seen in all his glory and John falls down before him in absolute amazement and worship. And Jesus comes up and he puts his hand on him and touches him. He says, don't, don't be afraid. But in that powerful picture of the Lord Jesus, in that section, it says, every eye will see him when he comes back. And how exactly that's going to work, um, spatially, in terms of geophysics and things like that, I don't know. That's God's department. He will figure that out. He will come from one direction, but the whole world is going to see it. By the way, that is not proof of a flat earth, so don't go there. <laughs> And in Revelation 19, verse 11, we see a second key phrase. That the heavens were open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is significant about Jesus coming back on a white horse? Well, he comes back to rule and reign this, on this planet. He's a warrior king. And do you know that in the first century in the Roman Empire, a white horse was ridden by a victorious Roman general? Is a sign of victory. J. Hampton Keithley, in his commentary on Revelation, says this, and very fitting as far as historical context goes. He says, The Roman triumph was the highest honor that could be bestowed on a victorious Roman general. It came from a Greek word that referred to a public and triumphal procession. The procession was a parade up the main street of Rome that led from the Forum to the Temple of Jupiter, which lay on the Capitoline Hill, the general 
was mounted on a white horse, which was the symbol of a victorious triumph in the field over the enemies of the nation. First came the spoils of war, which were eventually given to the general's army and friends, and next came the captives who had been defeated and captured in battle. Disarmed and in chains, then came the general on his white horse, followed by his family, his friends, and his army. So there is a similarity or parallel in Revelation and what will happen in history to what happened in history past in the Roman Empire. By the way, let's just put this out there right now as we're about to read all these descriptions of this great future event. What is going to happen is so magnificent and beyond comparison even to what's happened in human history thus far that it almost seems like a dream, the things that we're reading. It almost seems surreal and hard to wrap our minds around. But keep in mind, dear saints, that God revealed this for a purpose. He pulled back the curtain of history to show us not merely a dream, an idealistic way of looking at prophecy. He's showing us future history before it happens. This is a real event that we're going to read about. Now, as you think of Jesus Christ coming back on a white horse, it reminds me of the contrast of how he came in that triumphal entry, the last week of his life, how he came riding into Jerusalem on what? A donkey. How humble for a king. But wasn't that the whole point? That it was thankfully due to that humility that he was willing to go low and become a servant and go all the way to the cross, Philippians 2 says. He brought himself that low for our sakes so he could die for the sins of the entire world. What a king who would first come to serve his subjects and then rule afterwards as a king. What a tremendous lesson and example for us that the serving comes before the reigning and the cross comes before the crown. The day and age in which we live, dear saints, is our opportunity to serve the Lord and then we will get our reward in eternity. And this life is very short. It's worth serving him now in light of the eternal benefit that we're all going to get. Keep that in mind. Now, as we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is a victor over Satan. He's on that white horse. In fact, who else came forth on a white horse? Do you remember from the book of Revelation? We read in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, that it was Satan who came forth. When that first seal was broken, it was the Antichrist who came on the scene. Jesus broke the seal as the Lamb of God. And the first thing God allows the world to have is its false Christ that it wants. Someone in the place of Jesus Christ Someone who will promise physical or social or political deliverance and salvation rather than meeting man's greatest need of salvation from our sin problem and reconciliation between us and an infinitely holy God. But then Revelation goes on to describe the one who is worthy. In chapter 4 and chapter 5, we are introduced in this heavenly scene to the worthy one, Jesus Christ, the true Christ the one who takes the title deed to planet earth. And why is he worthy to judge the earth and come forth on a white horse as the true victor, not the false victor, the antichrist? It's because this Christ, the true Christ, Jesus Christ, 
first was willing again to go to the cross and die for all our sins and be the sacrifice for the sins of the world. He first came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, John 1.29. And all who have put their trust in him, in him alone and not our works or our righteousness, but in his finished work, John 19.30, all who have done that are, are one of his and forgiven forever and have eternal life. And we'll be part of this bride that comes back if you've been saved in this age of grace. But we also know from Scripture that there are two main pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ at his comings. The first coming as a lamb, the second as a lion of the tribe of Judah, Revelation 5 says. And he will come back with a mighty roar, the book of Joel says, to rescue his people. Now, going on in Revelation 19, we not only read that he was on a white horse, but also he is called faithful and true, this one who sat on him. That is a description of who he is and his character. Faithful means he's reliable. If he says something, he's going to do it. And that means you can trust what he says. He has a reliable character. He's called true here. And the idea is of being authentic. He's the real deal. He's genuine. He doesn't come on the world stage pretending to be somebody he's not, like the Antichrist, for example. And we know that Satan is the great pretender. As has already been mentioned in this conference, I believe by Pastor Kevin, that Satan can't create anything. All he can do is take what God has created and try to be a copycat and make a model of it, and by that, deceive the world. God is the only originalist because there can only be one creator of everything, and that's him. But Jesus is called faithful and true here. And because he is this in his essence and nature and character, that means he will be faithful to his promise to return to the earth. He will be faithful to Israel to fulfill the promised covenants to Israel and the prophecies about his coming reign and deliverance of them. God must fulfill his word or else he's not truly God. And Jesus Christ is fully God. So as he kept his promises to come at his first coming, he will be faithful in keeping them at his second coming. Here's a third description of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 11. It says that in righteousness he judges and makes war. In righteousness, he judges and makes war. And I'm so glad for that expanded explanation there in verse 11, because there are those who say there isn't no such thing as a just war or a righteous war, that all war is bad and wrong. In fact, you might read about how uh, gruesome this battle of Armageddon is going to be with blood up to the horse's bridles and so forth for a huge distance and say, well, that can't be just. How could a loving God do that? You know, this just doesn't fit with my conception of Jesus, gentle and meek. Well, he comes back powerful and victorious because he is the omnipotent one as well, who first again laid down his life. Now, it is true that not all wars are just, but it's also true that not all wars are unjust, as many theological liberals say today. In fact, many wars in the Old Testament were fought by some godly saints of old, thinking of Abraham when he rescued Lot, 
or the conquest under Joshua in the Promised Land, or the many battles of David, and they often fought for a righteous cause. And I believe that it was God's will that they did so. And it is necessary at times to fight such battles. I'd, although I would say this, you know, as we read these accounts here of this judgment of God in the Battle of Armageddon, some people might recoil at this thing. Oh, I'm just, I don't have the temperament for this kind of thing. Well, you are going to be there, so you, you better be prepared. But secondly, I would say this, that aren't we so used to God's grace? We live in the age of grace, which think of it as the longest of all the dispensations. Thus far, 2,000 years. How long was the law with Israel? About 1,500 years. How long will the kingdom on the earth be? 1,000 years. What's the longest of all the dispensations so far? It's the age of grace, the church age. Don't you think God is wanting to set forth his grace to the praise of the glory of his grace, Ephesians 1 says? Absolutely. We'll praise him for that. But I think this, we are so used to grace, like fish swimming in a fishbowl, that, you know, once God drops the hammer of his justice, it almost seems like he's unjust to do that, or unrighteous. But keep in mind what this passage says, that he is righteous to judge and make war, verse 11. Now we also see in verse 12 that it says, his eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns, many crowns. Now I don't know, again, physically how that will work. If Jesus is going to wear different crowns at different times or all at once, stacked up. You know, we will cast our crowns at Jesus' feet and the New Testament says there are different crowns that we can wear. I tend to think we're not going to wear more than one. You know, stack them like checkers on our head. Uh, I tend to think we're going to wear one at a time. And you've got the crown of righteousness, cast that down. Crown of glory, cast that one down. Crown of life, you'll cast that one down too. And God will just keep filling up your head. But here it says Jesus has more than one crown. And the word for crown here is diadema in Greek, which is a particular kind of crown. It's a king's crown in contrast to the Olympic athlete who received a Stephanus, which was a, a crown due to working or achievement. But here it's a king's crown. And in those days, when a king would conquer another king or realm, he would take the crown of that other king and add it to his collection. And that's who Jesus is here. He's the king of kings. He conquers all these other kings. He collects the crowns. And thus he can wear more than one. He collects the crowns of all who rebelled at him, against him in unbelief at Armageddon. Now verse 12 says, his eyes were like a flame of fire. And that fits with Revelation chapter 1. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no one knew except himself. Now, why would God tell us that? Well, there's other names that we know about him. For example, there's a name written on his thigh and robe, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's also called the Word of God, verse 13. But here, there is this incomprehensible name. In fact, there's several attributes about him in verse 12 that we need to note. Eyes like a flame of fire. Can you imagine looking at the glorious risen Lord Jesus Christ? And he's going to look at you and his eyes are glowing like fire. How majestic is that? 
It speaks of his penetrating omniscience. And remember, he's all-knowing because he's fully God. And he wears many crowns. Why? Because he's the king of all kings. He has not only a delegated sovereignty, he has absolute sovereignty as Lord of lords and king of kings. All authority and power has been given to him by God the Father. And then he has a name written on him which no one knew. It's incomprehensible. And there's a lot revealed about the Lord Jesus Christ in Scripture. But there are some things we just won't know about him that are between him and God the Father. Now, what else is noteworthy about his appearance? We see that he is coming back on a white horse with many crowns. But it also says in verse 13 that he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Dipped in blood. Dipped in blood. And there's some question. Whose blood is this? Is it his own? Because remember, he's the lamb who shed his blood for the sins of the world. Some people interpret the passage that way. I don't think it's in reference to the blood of Calvary at all. Rather, it's in reference contextually to the blood that's going to be shed in this battle. It's... Not his own blood on that robe. It's the blood of others whom he executes at the second coming. I know this is graphic, but this is what's actually going to happen. In fact, we're told in Isaiah 63 verses 1 through 3 that this will be literally fulfilled at the return of Christ. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. That's the Lord. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden in the winepress alone. Jesus is the only one who executes this judgment at the second coming. And from the peoples, no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained all my robes. This is speaking in figurative terms of like a wine press where the grapes of wrath are stored up. And by the way, dear saints, keep in mind, right now is the time of God's grace. And we've been living in a 2,000-year grace period. But again, God's going to say, there is a deadline and there is a time. And if you've been rejecting my grace, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, Romans 1.18, then you're storing up wrath, he says to the unsaved world. He's going to come back and trample the grapes of wrath, Scripture says. So this is he who comes on a white horse with many crowns and a robe dipped in blood, the blood of his enemies. And his name is called, verse 13, the Word of God. This is something else we learn about him from this passage. Who else is Jesus Christ, the one who is the spirit of prophecy, the essence of all prophecy? He is the Word of God. You say, well, is he a book? No, it's not saying that. But remember, this book describes him in great detail. When Jesus Christ came on the earth as the incarnate Word, those who heard him, who saw him, we're basically looking at a walking, talking revelation of God. Just like if you were to see and hear this book. That's who he was. John 1 verse 1. 
describes Jesus as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was fully God and still is, always will be. But verse 14 goes on to say, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And you know what the greatest demonstration of grace was, according to the book of John? It was the cross. John saw the glory of Jesus Christ revealed over and over and over in his deeds, in his character, and in his words. But the greatest demonstration of grace was at the cross when he said, it is finished. And that's why John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The Greek text literally says he has exegeted him. He's the exegesis of God the Father. How do we know who God is? Well, look at Jesus. That's how you know who God really is. He who has seen me has seen the Father, he told his disciples. Going on in verse 14, it says, And the armies of heaven, clothed in fine linen, bright, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now it shifts from the victor himself to his victors who ride in his victory train. Who are the armies of heaven here, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, on white horses? Well, it's the church. We just read about that in chapter 19, verses 7 through 9. Remember the bride being fitted with her wedding garment? That's us, dear saints. Ephesians 5 is very clear. We are the bride of Jesus Christ, the Lamb's wife. Now, what that means is, we're all going to have a free trip to Israel one day. How many of you have ever been to Israel? Uh, fortunate few, but most of you haven't. I've got good news for you. You're all going to be there one day, perhaps within seven years. And we're all going to be riding on the same airline. And, and you already have your reservation in. And the trip's been fully paid for. And it's going to be really exciting when we get there. A lot of action that's going to go on. And uh, you get to ride on White Horse Airlines. But you know what else we will not have on that trip? And this is really significant. As you read verse 14, what's missing? Do you see any rifles, machine guns, uh, shoulder-held rocket launchers, uh, tanks coming back, uh, F-35s, nothing of the sort, right? We have no weapons, no armor, no strategies to execute the battle plan. We come back as non-combatants, but we're still part of the army. We're observers, perhaps reporters. Now, why would God let us be on the front lines and watch Jesus doing all the work and fighting? It's so we would be impressed with him and what he does for us. Think back to your eternal salvation when you were born again. Who did all the work of your salvation to accomplish and achieve that and purchase that for you? Jesus did. He said, it is finished. What about when it comes to your Christian life? Oh, well, that's where I got to do all the work to make myself sanctified. Ah, oh, you've misunderstood then. We're, we're sanctified by grace as well. And by Jesus Christ abiding in us, as we abide in fellowship and dependence upon him. And third, ten, salvation will be the same way. He's going to do all the work, so he gets all the glory and all the credit. And we get to ride on white horses back with him. 
And some have asked, well, are these literal horses? Well, I tend to think they probably will be. Probably created for this special purpose and this special time. And you say, well, how is that going to work? Well, nothing's too hard for God, right? Didn't he create all the horses the first time? I think he can do it again. He's the omnipotent God of the universe. In fact, Jesus might be the one who creates these horses just for us since it's his army and we follow him. And by the way, this passage is no justification for believing that your pet, when it dies, will go to heaven. I say that. I know. It's very disappointing. <laughs> I, I feel for you, Teresa, because two weeks ago in the Stiegel household, our pet Yorkie Poo of 14 years passed away the day before the Bible conference. We had to actually bring him in and have him put down. He was, he was deathly sick. But it was a very sad day, and it was hard to let go. And you can see why people want their pets to be in heaven. But I don't think this passage is supporting that at all. That would be a reach, right? Now, a sixth point that we want to see in this passage is that the return of Jesus Christ with the church riding on white horses will be accompanied by others. Who will come back with us? We will have an angel escort, the Bible says. And that's why I think this graphic is very accurate. You see us riding behind Jesus. We are overcomers because he is the overcoming one. 1 John 5, 4 and 5 says, All who believe in him are overcomers. No matter whether you've lived a super saintly Christian life or you're like the Corinthians, right? All who believe in him are overcomers. And it was Jesus who said in John 16, 33, Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now think of the Gospel of John for a minute. This is an important point. How many times does the word believe occur in the Gospel of John? 98 times. Almost 100 times. That's the condition to receive eternal life, said repeatedly, because God knows sometimes we need to hear it over and over again. But when you come to the book of Revelation, do you know that the word believe disappears completely? The condition for eternal life is never stated in those terms. Instead, how are believers described in the book of Revelation? As overcomers and saints. Why would God switch from believer to overcomer? Because the whole theme of the book is centered around victory in Jesus Christ. You see, we ride on his victory train. He does all the work. We just believe in him and his work. And we're constituted victors. Not by our performance, but by his. But yet we come back following him, and who is going to go forth with us at that time? Many angels, the Bible says. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you have seen the movie Top Gun or Maverick? I'll confess I have a few times. Cool movies, right? <laughs> and you know, those pilots always talk about their wingman. You know, you've got to have a good wingman if you're part of this, this uh, fighter jet team, right? A good wingman is essential when it comes to battle. Do you know that the wingmen we're going to have will actually have wings? <laughs> It'll be the best wingmen you can imagine. The angels will go for it. Now, what about Old Testament and tribulation saints? 
those who've died, who are believers, who aren't part of the church, and obviously who aren't angels, when are they going to be resurrected? Well, it's not clear as far as the chronology of when this will happen. I tend to think that it'll be after the Battle of Armageddon, but certainly before the entrance into the kingdom, which they're all looking forward to. Now, why do we say that that's the timing, roughly, of when the Old Testament saints and presumably tribulation saints will be raised as well? Well, Daniel makes this very clear in Daniel 12, 1 and 2. It says, at that time, Michael shall stand up, and that's an angel, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, that would be Israel, and there shall be a time of trouble, namely the tribulation, such as was never since there was a nation, even to that time. So again, there can only be one unprecedented period of human history. It must be the tribulation, Jacob's trouble. And it says, and at that time your people, namely the Jews, shall be delivered. Everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so I think this verse, verse 2, is very clearly speaking of the resurrection to glory of Old Testament saints. And by the way, why wouldn't tribulation saints be raised at the very same time to go into the kingdom? But going back to Revelation 19, we see a further and seventh description of the Lord Jesus. It says in verses 15 and 16, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we see here that Christ will execute judgment upon mankind because he has absolute and final authority. This has been given to him by God the Father, and the Father says, go do it, Jesus, Son. We see in several passages of the New Testament, and this is just a sampling, that he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has raised from the dead namely the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter calls him Lord of all, Acts 10.36, and he will be the judge of mankind. So in verses 11 through 16 so far, we have seen the return of Jesus Christ. Now in verses 17 through 21, we will see the battle of Armageddon. Let's read together verses 17 through 19. It says, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sat on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, that would be the Antichrist, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse, and against his army. Now, as I read verse 19, I'm astounded that the Antichrist would make war against Jesus Christ or against us at that point. Why? Because we're the indestructibles, right? We have our resurrection bodies. So does Jesus. Sticks and stones don't even break our bones, and names will not hurt us either. <laughs> we'll be in glory. 
But what we read about in these verses is the great supper of God, it says here. Now, this does not refer to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That is experienced and enjoyed by all who enter the the thousand-year phase of the kingdom at the very beginning of that kingdom, after the battle of Armageddon. What this is referring to here, this great supper of God where the birds are invited to feast, this refers to that time before the kingdom with the judgment known as Armageddon. You know, as the redeemed bride of Christ, the church, we will attend the marriage supper of the Lamb, being his wife at that time, the bride. That'll happen at the start of the kingdom. But the birds of prey that are spoken of here in verses 17 through 19, these are, these are different. This is a different instance. Aren't you thankful to be a believer during the church age? where you, you've put in your reservation already for this marriage supper, this uh, celebration after the wedding, so to speak, where all the guests come who are going to be Old Testament and tribulation saints, by the way. And that is not going to be a supper of great slaughter. Whereas what we read in verse 17 through 19 is a supper of slaughter, where the guests invited to the supper are the food itself. How gruesome is that? The host invites the guests to be hosted upon as prey by the birds who are called to this feast. That's Armageddon. That's an amazing scene, powerful, and you don't want to be part of that. Now, as we think of Armageddon, a lot of people use this as a scare word. It's a popular term in our culture. It's used by many preachers. It's the title of movies. It is the title of uh, survival gear and a company by that name. A video game is named after it. A New York Times best-selling book goes by that title. In fact, the common person in our culture today has heard the word Armageddon, right? But what does that mean? What is this battle? Some view it as this cataclysmic end of the world, but we know that it's really not. What we see from Armageddon is that Jesus Christ is all-powerful, and he is king. He is a God of justice and love, and he always keeps his promises. So what is Armageddon? It is the final war, and the Greek word is polymos, used here in Revelation 19, as well as chapter 16, verse 14. It's the final war or campaign, it's actually got stages to it, as we'll see, of the Antichrist and the armies of the entire world coming against Israel and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the passage earlier in Revelation that has described Armageddon for us is in chapter 16. In between chapter 19 are two chapters, 17 and 18, that describe Babylon. But if you go just prior to that, before Babylon is described, you come to the uh, bowl judgments, and you'll see the description of the Battle of Armageddon. So chapter 19 just picks it up where chapter 16 left off. So we read in chapter 16, verses 12 through 16, 
Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, that would be the false prophet, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief, Jesus says here, inter interjects this. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Christ could come back in any moment, is the idea in this church age. Verse 16, and they gathered together, them together at this place called in Hebrew, Armageddon. So again, this is a war, verse 14 says. It's a campaign of Antichrist against and the armies of the world in coalition against Israel and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, where does the name Armageddon come from? Well, it's a Hebrew word. Har means hill or mountain in Hebrew. And Megiddo speaks of destruction. And there is a place in Israel today called Megiddo. And it is a hill. But it's actually what we would describe as a tell. A tell is a mound that's been built up over time as one layer of civilization has been built on top of another and over various centuries, in fact, millennia, that mound grows higher and higher and higher. This was apparently like a fortress city that guarded this region in the Jezreel Valley in northwest Israel. And so you can see that the town of Megiddo is actually not far from Nazareth where the Lord Jesus was. This is modern-day Israel here in a map. You can also see where Megiddo was. It was part of this Jezreel Valley in northwest Israel. By the way, Jezreel, Jez, Jezreel, the L ending says God, and it literally means God saves. Very interesting for a place where all the armies of the world are gathered. But this is a view from the top of Mount Carmel in Israel, looking down over this valley of Armageddon, otherwise known as the Valley of Jezreel. It's 14 miles wide and 20 miles long, going northwest to southeast on the west side of the Jordan River area there. And this has been the site of many battles down through history. We don't have time to go into them. But you should know that Napoleon famously defeated the Turks there in 1799. And he is purported to have said at that time that this is the most ideal battlefield in the entire world. Very interesting. A lot of people agree with the Bible and they don't even know it. <clears throat> now, when will this battle take place? Well, this religious and military campaign will take place at the end of the seven-year period of tribulation. So we've seen what the Battle of Armageddon is or the War of Armageddon, who will be involved, where it will be, now the question is, when will this be? Now before we actually look at the, the when, we, we looked at that already at the end of the tribulation, let's look at the question of what the battle of Armageddon is not. What is not true of this? Well, first of all, let's clarify that it is not the end of the world. You know, people often speak of it in those terms today, like, oh, we're living in, in fact, I, my mother, I have to, to say, she's Roman Catholic and hasn't read much of the Bible in terms of prophecy. 
But in the last three years, she's asked me twice, Tom, is this the end of the world? And you know what I've told her? No, it's not, Mom. The Bible says, in fact, this tired old earth has got a lot of life left on it. There's a thousand-year kingdom coming, a new heavens and a new earth. But you need to be sure that you're eternally saved. So it's not the end of the world, nor is it primarily about man destroying himself, such as through nuclear annihilation. And oftentimes people speak of Armageddon that way. It is also not something that will happen tomorrow or the next day or the next month or even next year. For at the earliest, this is seven years away, potentially. And so it's not the next event on the horizon. So if Putin pushes the nuclear button, don't worry, it's not the end of the world. Okay? It's also not to be confused with the battle of Gog and Magog. And there are two future battles of Gog and Magog to come. Ezekiel 38 and 39 says, I think that will take place early in the tribulation. And the other reference to Gog and Magog in that battle will take place at the end of the thousand-year kingdom. And so Armageddon is not either one of those. But Armageddon will have eight stages to it. And we're going to move through these rather quickly so we don't get bogged down. The first stage is that the Antichrist and the world's armies will be satanically drawn to Armageddon, this location, the Valley of Jezreel. We already saw that the demons will go forth to the kings of the earth and they will all gather together at this one spot, this battlefield. Now, the actual battle doesn't take place on the fields of the Valley of Jezreel or Armageddon, but that is where the armies of the world and the Antichrist assemble. And a decree will be issued from the capital city of Babylon, which I think is where the Antichrist is going to have his headquarters, at least in the second half of the tribulation, to go to Israel and meet there at this Valley of Armageddon. And the next stage, then, is the city of Babylon. Antichrist's headquarters is going to be destroyed by God. As the Antichrist and his armies are moving towards Israel, what happens back in Babylon? God says, you're gone? All right, now I'm going to destroy your city. And that's what we read about in Revelation chapters 17 and 18, which, unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time to go into. I'll tell you, though, who is uh, an expert in this area on Babylon is Andy Woods. He wrote a, a book on it. In fact, it was his doctoral dissertation at Dallas Seminary. He's, he's reduced it to a popular book. And he believes this will be a literal rebuilt city, as I do too. In fact, we can look at future prophecy as yet historical events to be fulfilled, just like a believer about 100 years ago, living in 1923, reading the Bible and saying, Israel is going to be in the land? Uh, Lead of the mountains on the Sabbath day when you see the Antichrist standing in the holy place, uh, the abomination of desolation, that, that must mean Israel's going to be back in the land. Daniel 9, he'll put an end to the sacrifices and offerings in the holy place. Well, Israel's not in the land. They don't have their own country. But the eye of faith would have said, that must mean they're going to come back. And they did in 1948. When we hear about a temple and plans for it to be rebuilt with sacrifices and such, 
And the groundswell of interest for that among the Jews, not the evangelical Christians in America, the Jews are the ones driving this in Israel. We say to ourselves, there's going to be a rebuilt temple too. It's not there, but it will be. And the same is true of Babylon, I believe. And so, Babylon is destroyed. And it wasn't just Andy Woods who wrote an excellent book on this. Charles Dyer, who also taught at Dallas Seminary, wrote about this future literal rebuilt Babylon as well. So that's the second stage. The third stage is that the Antichrist will attack and overtake the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So the battle scene shifts to Jerusalem, where the Antichrist goes and his armies, and they attack this holy city. Zechariah 14, verses 1 and 2 describe this. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So some of the Jews in Israel will stay there, others will be taken, but the Antichrist and his armies will attack the city of Jerusalem. A fourth stage to this campaign or war of Armageddon involves the Antichrist moving southward to attack the remnant of Jews living in the desert city of Basra or Petra in the region of Edom. And why those cities in that region? Because that's where the Jews have fled for protection. You say, well, where is that exactly? Well, it's southeast of Jerusalem by, I believe, over a hundred miles or so. Right here where you see this circle. And so the Antichrist attacks Jerusalem and he will succeed, but there's going to be heavy casualties. Half of the Jews are able to escape. And where do they flee to? A place that God has prepared for them as he always provides a place of protection for his remnant, Israel. In Matthew 24, verse 6 says, that they will flee to the mountains. Revelation chapter 12, various passages say God will provide a place for them in the wilderness. Isaiah 33 also says a rocky place that is easily defended. And Micah chapter 2, verse 12 says, I will surely assemble, O Jacob, all of thee. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together as the sheep of Basra. He will gather up his sheep, put them in a pen, and protect them in this region. I was just reading Daniel last week and came across this passage in Daniel 11. The end of Daniel 11 describes the coming Antichrist. And in verse 41, it interestingly says this, He, the Antichrist, shall also enter the glorious land, and we know he will invade Israel at the very end of the tribulation, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon. And I've circled here the area where, where this is. This is basically Jordan today, especially southern Jordan, where Edom is located. And very interesting, if you've ever gone on a tour of Israel, perhaps you go into Jordan and you get to see the ancient city of Petra, where the Edomites lived, and they have these huge stone cliffs that form a natural fortress. And it's as though God is going to take his sheep and securely put them right there where they'll be able to survive. 
But doesn't this fit with the rising anti-Semitism we see even in the world today? That Pastor Kevin just explained in the last hour. You see, Satan wants to exterminate the Jews. Why? They're his nationally chosen people. He's made a covenant with them. And the Bible says when they repent and turn in faith to Jesus Christ, then the Lord will come back to deliver them. And Satan will be defeated. So if Satan can destroy the Jews before Christ does that, Satan will think that he's won. Going on, uh, the fifth stage in this campaign <clears throat> shifts then again to Basra or Petra, where we see the national regeneration of Israel. The Jews will believe in Jesus Christ as, at this time as their true Messiah. In fact, they will call upon him, as Joel 2.32 says, and they will be saved physically. They'll believe in him for eternal life, be regenerated. They will call upon him for national or physical deliverance. And that's what will happen at this time. Zechariah 12, verses 9 and 10 says, It shall be in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that have come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And then they will look on me whom they have pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And when Israel turns in faith to Jesus Christ and calls upon him, he will answer and he will come back and deliver them. And that's the sixth stage of this campaign we see is that though blindness has happened in part to Israel during this present age as the Gentiles are coming in, Romans 11.26 says, So all Israel will be saved at that time. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So he will return in great power and glory to rescue the regenerated Jews at Basra and judge the armies of the world. And then the seventh stage of this campaign shifts to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. And there's some dispute as to where exactly that is. But we see with this that the Lord Jesus returns and he fights for the remnant of Jews living in Jerusalem still. And he judges the armies of the nations in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, Jehoshaphat means in Hebrew, the Lord judges. And we know that he will do this according to the prophet Joel. Joel 3, verses 12 and 13 says, Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Why? Because in this context of Joel 3, it said earlier in verse 2, that all the nations have divided up my land. God says in his word, don't touch my land. It's my land of Israel. When you carve it up, try to make peace plans and such, you're messing with my land. When you're giving away part of Israel to the nations, I'm going to step in and intervene. But anyway, that's the impetus for this judgment in large part. So verse 12, he comes to the valley of Jehoshaphat and he judges. Verse 13, put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. And we've already seen how this fits with Armageddon. Joel 3 fits right in there. Now, where is the valley of Jehoshaphat? Some say it's just to the east of Jerusalem, between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount. 
And in fact, there is a ravine that runs through there. Some say the Kidron Valley, but it's really just a ravine. It's not a true valley per se. And so I think it's possible that the Valley of Jehoshaphat is a figurative expression for the place where God's going to come back and simply judge. By the way, Isaiah 63 also said that Jesus Christ would come back from Edom with his apparel already red because he's already been trampling the grapes of wrath and he will come to Jerusalem as such as well. And the last stage of this campaign of Armageddon is that Jesus Christ victoriously ascends to the Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, splitting it in two. And so he ascended from the Mount of Olives and eventually he is going to come back there. Now, some say that he will come directly from heaven and touch down on the Mount of Olives and split it in two. But this chronology of at least eight stages is, is held by a number of Bible prophecy scholars. And there's some interpretative disagreement among scholars as to whether there's more than these eight or if it's condensed. So we want to show some grace here. But I don't think Jesus is going to come back as the very first thing he does and touch down on the Mount of Olives and split it in two. In fact, I think it'll probably be at the very end here as he ascends the Mount as the victor. Zechariah 14 verses 3 and 4 say, Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move towards the north and half of it toward the south. By the way, there's a huge fault line that runs right along there from the Sea of Galilee all the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba. Perhaps Jesus is going to just tap what's already there and it'll just split open. Now what's going to happen to the Antichrist and false prophet and Satan? Going back to Revelation 19, we read in summary the battle of Armageddon in verse 19, but let's continue on. John says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire. Gehenna, the final abode of all the lost and for the fallen angels, the lake of fire burning with brimstone. By the way, the beast and the false prophet are still there a thousand years later, meaning they get their indestructible bodies right here, or have it by this point. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds filled were filled up with their flesh. So that's what happens to the Antichrist and the false prophet. What about Satan? Chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, just continue and say that he is going to be taken and for a thousand years put into the bottomless pit with a great chain so that he can no longer go forth and deceive the nations. For 1,000 years. Can you imagine planet Earth with no Satan on it? Oh, amazing. We can hardly even fathom how glorious that will be with Jesus Christ reigning and no global deception. Now what about the rest of the nations? Apart from the 
Gentile armies that come, and perhaps even if the United States is still around, will be part of all that too to attack Israel. What's going to happen to the Gentile world when Jesus comes back and cleans house at Armageddon? Well, then he's going to set up his throne and all the nations are going to be brought to Jerusalem and judged. The sheep and the goats, Matthew 25 says. And that's where that judgment will take place. Those who were believing Gentiles, as demonstrated by how they treated the Jews, they will be ushered into the kingdom and given their reward. Those who were unbelieving Gentiles, who mistreated the Jews during the tribulation, they will be ushered into Hades, the beginning of their fiery judgment, later to be cast into the lake of fire. And they'll receive their rewards, so to speak. And so we've dealt with this prophetic event right here. We've answered and asked several questions about Armageddon. But one very important question remains. The wherefore of it all. Why is the return of Jesus Christ and the judgment of Armageddon so important? And why should it matter to us? Well, it's necessary for true righteousness and justice. That can't be left undone. It's necessary for rebellious unbelievers to be removed before Christ's kingdom is set up, just as he promised. It's necessary to save the nation of Israel and for God to fulfill his covenant promises to them as he is the faithful and true God. And it's necessary for us to understand and rest assured that God is in complete control, not only of the past, but also the present we're living in today with all this talk of war in Israel. But he's also perfectly in control of the future, dear believer. And we hear a lot of talk today about how love wins. Well, you know what? Love and justice, which both met at the cross, both win in the end. Because Jesus embodies both. Have you put your trust in Jesus Christ and him alone as the Lamb of God to take away your sins, the sins of the world? You must do that. I implore you to if you haven't already. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We've covered a lot of ground here with these prophetic events. Rich truth. I pray that it would deeply impact us and that we would see Jesus Christ as a result in a greater way. So give us a hope for the future because of how magnificent your Son and our Savior is. We pray this now in his precious name. Amen.